Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As a little season end bonus, we promised you we would share some of the highlights of postcards from Midlife Live, which took place over two glorious days in London back in May. Now, you may already have heard the full interviews live on stage with Ruby Wax and Anna Richardson, which we recorded at the show. And now we have some little snippets from all of our favourite guests, actress Patsy Kensett, therapist Julia Samuel, gut health expert Professor Tim Spector and leading medical specialist Dr Louise Newsom. Yes, we thought this little quartet uh, summed up a lot of what we go through in midlife and their personal insights and expert advice are really useful. And we hope this is going to tide you over until we're back in September with season 10. Oh my God, season 10. Do stay in touch with us on our private Facebook group, Postcards from Midlife. You can join there. You just have to answer three questions and abide by Trish's rules. You can also email us if you've got anything to ask or any guest suggestions or anything you want to tell us on hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. Me and Trish monitor that. You can chat to us on Instagram as well in the direct messages. Uh, It's just me and Trish. It's us personally responding. So share everything. Keep sharing your solo travel pictures because we've loved them, haven't we, Trish? Yes. And if you've got any family work or relationship dilemmas, we'd love to know about that as well because you can email us privately because we are going to get all those answered in our Agni Aunt special this autumn. And before we depart for our luxury (laughs) cruise together. That's what I imagine, Trish. Yes, people are probably imagining (laughs) us, aren't they? The menopausal Walkman wise taking to the high seas. (laughs) We need to let you know that we'll be dropping, as the young folks say, our episodes on a Sunday morning for you once again. Yes, you told us and we listened. You you like to do your podcast listening to us on Sunday morning. So Postcard from Midlife Sunday service will resume with season 10. Now it's time to meet Patsy live on stage. We welcome Patsy Kensett, 56, back to the podcast at our live show almost a year after she first spoke to us on the podcast about her midlife journey. The 90s icon came to chat to us on the sofa for the second time in a gorgeous satin green vampire's wife dress. Do you remember that, Trish? It was lovely. It was beautiful. Yes. Yeah. She just returned from the Caribbean filming a secret project and we asked her about her two sons leaving home, finding new love in her 50s, and she revealed the advice Elton John had given her about enjoying life in the public eye. We join her here in a reflective mood about the highs and lows she's experienced through her life and career. I look back on my life and it's been this real, a real ride, you know, some real highs and some terrible lows. A lot of it, I think, why did I even, why did I, that bother me? Oh my God, that's ridiculous. Oh, that's stupid. Now, I, I have a completely different um, take on things. My boys are both involved in the entertainment business of sorts. My son is an artistic director for the Arctic Monkeys. He does all the, ca- wow. the cameras on He's, he's on, been on tour with them now for nearly a year. My youngest son is a guitarist, self-taught, he's brilliant, but he, does, he models to make some money. They've moved out, of course, and that's yeah. just... saddest of days. Oh the my saddest God! Of days. <laughs> well, I mean, when when James went to Italy, I went and got the cat immediately, <laughs> and so it was, you know, which and who we all worship, but obviously it's not your son. And then I followed him to Italy. I turned up there. I said, "Oh well, I've come here." And he's like, "Mom, leave me alone." Um, <laughs> so, but but uh, what I will say is that we have to be kind to each other. Uh, we have to be able to to stand up for ourselves. I think there's a way, a digni- dignified way of doing that. I think I've learned everything that's happened to me, even the terrible things. I've learned some. It's, mm. it, it, there's a lesson in it somewhere. Mm. I started meditation about nine years ago. That changed my life. I'm not going to lie. Some days is the last thing on earth I want to do. My morning runs, which 
you know, was fastidious about so since I've been working flat out since October. I've probably been on the treadmill twice. <laughs> and so it's, a, and, and it's good for my mental health because I have suffered from depression. It began as a child. I used to say this thing, and, and I remember it, I must have been about eight or nine, I'm having a bad thought, I'm having a bad thought. And my mum, who was like strong, and I don't, you know, she was just, she's an angel, she's the best mother on, on the planet. And she would like, oh, just ignore it, cancel it, you know, you know, our mental health, I'm really glad that people talk about it now. And there mm, are days that, that... You you said on the when you came on the podcast, because you are now older yes. than your mum when she died, mm-hmm. that you were actually, you see ages, ageing as such a privilege and such a positive thing yeah. because you've had this extra amazing time. And you said you were looking forward to becoming 60. That's one yes. of your things, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. What's the, where's the, the, the fear of, I wouldn't want to be 25 again. No. I mean, I, I, just, I wouldn't. But I think we, we, we have such power. There's such a community of women now that, and, and we're talking about stuff that was, was never discussed. And what an amazing thing you ladies have done. I mean, really, they deserve a round of applause because it's bringing this, bringing this to, to, to each other. And also, for, if there are men in our lives, for them to understand. In Victorian days, they would put women in into like a psychiatric facility to um because yeah. they said they had they you know they were hysteria they, uh, hyster- yeah hysteria. exactly hysteria. you have had some good news this year because you popped a lovely thing on your instagram because yeah. when you came on the show we talked to you talk, you told us you were a hopeless romantic yes. which i think is just a lovely phrase and then you put a picture of your engagement on yes. your instagram yes. so you're in the joyous thing <laughs> aren't you yeah it's a funny one because you don't I actually at my age to meet people whatever I mean I, I'm, I'm in bed at nine I'm mean, really and truthfully on the show that I just finished it was, it was a fantastic cast so I'll, I'll go back to what you were saying but we, they get back to the, the hotel we were in every night and they were like come on to the bar pats and some that I was like I can't I've got to be in bed at eight I've got to get it I've got to wash my face put a treatment on my hair because it's like Monica and Friends you know the humidity episode my hair would go like that because I look very very unusual and I said and if I'm not asleep by eight o'clock I've got to be up at four so I have to have nine and then they, by the end of it they just like <laughs> didn't even bother asking me but so the thought of going out to a bar or looking for love would and they will say these things happen when you're not looking uh but yeah no I got set up on a blind date and there you go it was it oh, was um oh. what so, advice have you got for anyone here because we have a lot of women who start again with relationships and and actually mm. someone um Ms. Tamsin Althwaite came on the podcast and she said yes. when she was single in her late 40s, she just had this massive sense of relief that she wasn't looking for the one anymore. Yeah. That she could. What advice have you got for anyone here who might be single thinking, I'm, I would like to be in a relationship and I don't know how to Well, I, I think we have to really understand that you're, you're not going to be able to change someone. I mean, I use the word companionship. You know, not, I'm not, ru- I'm not ruling out mm-hmm. the intimacy side of things or whatever, but I believe that, you know, relationships are different. Mm. Uh, uh, I, for, yeah. for me, I feel at this age and, and it's good and that's okay. You just got to, you know, just be, be hopeful, be grateful. Even when, I mean, I've, the journey, I, I, it took me two days to get home from when we were filming because we had to do fly to France and then get the Eurostar because of emissions, which is a great thing mm. that, that, because of the environment. Yeah. So, mm. But you've got to lug your bags to, to, to the garden <laughs> or... And I mean, there was, you know, and then my ticket, I couldn't find my ticket or my passport. And I was just like, oh my... I want you to, in my head, I was screaming. And, but just, obviously, keep calm, keep cool. It's a different, it's a different time and it's crazy mad love when you're young I see my my youngest son is yeah he's madly in love with the most fantastic girl (laughs) she's brilliant I love her and she bakes cakes and things she's just really she's just great I I look at that and that's for them then I think you know without saying things feelings aren't deep or Really? No, it's a different it's a feeling, different. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And every relationship is different, isn't it? Every, every mm. relationship you I think have taste is, is going to be different. I mean, you know, yeah. as well. <laughs> oh, but talking about your two gorgeous sons, yes. um, 
what's your relationship with them like now? Because a lot of us have teenagers, older teenagers. Yes. Your boys are a bit older. How does the, the sort of mother-son relationship develop well, over it the gets, years? It gets better. And also, you're happy about the girlfriends. That's, you know, that's yeah. good. Well, Tell you've got to make that. friends with the girlfriends. Yeah. If you don't, <laughs> you're out. What advice have you got, Patsy, for everyone? The, um, in, they might be in the teenage years now. Well, see, the thing is, we broke my heart when they both became teenagers because we were so close and they've always come with me and my youngest son always used to say he wanted to marry me I mean you know he but yeah he was like I mean I tell him that now and he goes mom I was five <laughs> he's like and um I remember I was taking him to to um Euro Disney he came into my room in the morning it's the sweetest thing and he just said to me will you hold my hand at the station I'm gonna, I'm gonna cry actually no <laughs> said, will you hold my hand at the station it was the sweetest mm. Pure and love. now, and he used to put his arm around me walking down the street. And of course, now, anyway, when they became teenagers, they went upstairs, and it's like the Harry Enfield sketch. They go up in their petty bateau, smelling of like, you know, the, the, that gorgeous, clean smell. They've been bathed, and they come down on their 13th birthday, and it's like, <laughs> and everything. And then they start smelling of pizza, and their room smells of pizza. And you're like, what's in here? Because it's like this boy smell. So it, it did, it broke my heart, and, but then they come back. My eldest son, without fail, calls me every day, wherever he is oh, in does the world. He? Oh, that's good to know. Every day. Yeah. My, my youngest, not, not so much every day, but his generation, it's funny because he, what, if he WhatsApps me, it's like, hey, was well, one thing, then, mum, <laughs> I love you. Oh. And then I miss it. Well, why just, just put it in one? <laughs> what's with it? What is like, like, I'm like, well, we need it going, what's he going to tell me? What's coming next? And yeah, let's do that. I mean, it's great. Okay. And, uh, and so that, that generation, they're, they're not great chatter. They don't talk, I think, because so much of it is on, oh, on here yeah. and on here. Talking, when we, we, we're together, can't shut them up. But for my, my 23 year old, the chatting on the phone thing isn't, it's, you know, you get better. five minutes and you, yeah. you, you, that's a long conversation. Are they close <laughs> to each other? Are they close as they, they really are. Yeah. Um, they're funny together. I, when I got back on Sunday, we all met for lunch. I hadn't seen them for, it probably had been a month at that point. And we came and had lunch and Lennon's girlfriend, Izzy, was there, who's just, oh, I adore her. And... It's funny because they're like the pair of them. You see them together. I just sat back and watched them, and they're, you know, they're both doing very well in what they've decided what they've decided to do, and they've done it themselves. They won't. It wouldn't take any help. And I know there's the whole nepotism thing. I mean, James was like a roadie, and then worked as a runner on films, and I mean, he just he worked yeah. his ass off. Mm -hmm. um, and he's you know, he's in his thirties now, but they're just great together. They're funny. They wind each other up. We're obsessed with cats. I call them memes to annoy to annoy them. <laughs> memes, the memes, memes, yeah. And they go, "Mum, it's a meme." And I go, "Yeah, yeah, memes. I like the memes." I said, and so we always send cat memes to each other, which is very cute. And that that's something that my youngest son is very hot and coming back with a remark about that. I mean, listen, if I hadn't had those kids, I would. They're the reason that I carried on. That ten, that was a very difficult. A lot period. of a lot yeah. of stuff, yeah. and a lot yeah. of time, my life was. I mean, I got agoraphobia. Yeah, I mean, when lockdown happened, it was awful for everybody, but I kind of thought, well, great, I don't feel bad now because I don't have to leave the house. Mm -hmm. It's something that can creep up on me if I'm stressed. That stemmed from living for many years, and it's not the case now, thank God. Mm. No one's interested in me. I'm an old fart, and, 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 <laughs> and that's just wonderful. But I was having people, like, banked outside my house yeah, you, you and, were, and being yeah. pulled to pieces and body shamed you know for being too thin and then I changed my lifestyle and I gained a lot of weight and I, I think it's like emotional I've never smoked in my life I'm not a smoker but, but then they talk about when people stop smoking it's emotional mm -hmm. weight that they yeah, gain yeah. and I struggled for throughout my sort of 30s early 40s having been so small for so many years but I know I was called Fatsy Patsy and, mm. and I wouldn't buy these magazines and I haven't I've got real respect for great journalism mm. but I'll do my one rock star moment here. Elton John said to me <laughs> that, um, and I, I was I was getting a real every day, not like laying into me. The headlines the, were terrible, awful, yeah. shocking. Um, and I'm not, I don't feel sorry for myself. You know, it's just one of those things. Like I said, it, you know, now you know, 
as we yeah. did then, you, you just, you, you sue. But he, Elton said to me, <laughs> Elton said, you know what? You just can't start your day that way because I'd read everything. There was standing room only when Professor Tim Spector, or the gut guru, as we like to call him, joined us on the postcards from Midlife Live stage. His research on the gut biome, and in particular his recent studies into the impact of menopause on our gut health, gave us the answers we've been looking for as to why we pile on the pounds, especially around our middles during this life stage. Here's a taste of some of the many insightful things Tim, who is also founder of the Zoe program, told us about how to eat well as we age. We all have this gut microbiome, which is this community of all these trillions of microbes. And from the age of four, it's sort of re- we have a reasonable signature of what our ones are, but there's about a third of it that can change quite a lot. And what happens is that they gradually change with the age, but uh, we've seen that there is a quite a big shift at the menopause in the in the gut mm. microbiome perimenopause and menopause uh, yes so starting yeah. in perimenopause uh, we don't know exactly what the timing we haven't got quite enough data yet on that to pinpoint when it starts but we do know that 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 does change and that that influences many aspects of how we process food so the microbiome is this amazing series of mini pharmacies that are pumping out lots of chemicals which affect our immune system, they affect our brain, they affect um, our metabolism, our en- the way we sort of store energy, et cetera, et cetera. So if that changes, then suddenly everything is reset a little bit. So right. we think that the hormones, as they're changing, are switching something so that you're getting different communities of microbes that are, are from that point on, you know, more predominant than other ones. And so you tend to have a slightly more inflammatory uh, microbiome. It, you know, it's very happy with all that estrogen flooding in and the mm-hmm. cyclical patterns. And something seems to happen to it that uh, lose some of the benefits. You get less good ratio of good to bad bugs. And this mm-hmm. is sort of thing that probably happens uh, in males, but at a later time. So it's, you know, this it's sort of mm-hmm. bringing forward the aging aspect of the, of the microbiome. So that's, that's what happens right. to, the, to the gut, but this has big implications for... The whole body. For the whole body, how you feel. And, um, and mind. Yeah, we, we, you know, we're focusing on body weight, but actually a lot of the chemicals these microbes produce do affect our mood. And we know that mood changes you know, are one of the big things yeah. of the menopause. And it's quite likely that these microbes are actually uh, importantly having an influence on that as well. And that's, so the depression, the anxiety, these things could well be just by a shift in those microbes, even if you're keeping the, the food you're eating exactly the same as it was a, a couple of years before. So, you know, we are seeing an interaction between symptoms of the menopause and the state of the gut microbes. And this mm-hmm. is, we've shown in a couple of studies, the Zoe Predict study, which was this very detailed one mm-hmm. of around a thousand women that, you know, had everything done to them. And then We've got this bigger survey of about ten to 15,000 perimenopausal women from the Zoe Health Study yeah. that tells us this. So they are interacting so that the, how, how much your microbiome changes uh, does influence the symptoms of the menopause. Mm-hmm. But there, of course, there's this other big interaction between the microbes and what we think is happening is, is this response to food, not only by the microbes, but to our general system of sh- sugar spikes, insulin and uh, fat as well. So Mm -hmm. people tend to forget about fat levels, but six hours after eating, you should have generally lost most of the fat in your your blood vessels. But we see some women where it's just hanging around, these small particles are still there six hours later, and we know that irritates the blood vessels, causes inflammation. If that's happening regularly and it's suddenly occurring, that that has this knock-on effect of stressing the body. So if you keep the diet exactly the same, you, the hormones change. You're getting bigger sugar spikes. Uh, more fat is uh, hanging around longer for, in, your, in your blood. More inflammation. That means that you, you're going to put on weight and your appetite will increase. And we've seen actually that preference for the naughty carbs uh, and sweet yeah. treats actually increases 
relative to these symptoms. Because, so, because of the hormonal fluctuation. Yes, hormone yeah. fluctuation plus also these, you know, the more you're spiking and dipping, that tends to also increase this. And of course, you've got the other aspects of menopause, the poor sleep. Because that, that does is, affect appetite. You know, another yeah. big factor in how, in what you eat the next day. So right. we've shown in, our, in, the, in all these Zoe studies that a poor night's sleep means you, you're going to get a bigger sugar spike in the morning. Also, you're going to choose carbs over fats, and you'll be hungrier. So, so what, do, what do we do, Tim? What do we do? How do we... What, what do we do? Well... Uh, <laughs> You've only got 35 minutes to answer that. <laughs> where, first, where do you start, realize, I guess? Yeah, yeah. First realise that this is something, a change in your body. It's not just mm. you suddenly being lazy or yeah. uh, overeating. It's important. And, uh, you know, have lost motivation and, the, mm. you know the will to look after yourself. So that's really important. Second thing is to realize that your habits that previously have been okay for you, you need to change. I think that's the, the next thing that, you yeah. know, you're going through a phase of life, you need to up your game to really uh, keep yourself at a steady level and even more to improve. It's a key moment where you need to say, I used to be able to have those bagels and cream cheese or nice croissants orange juice without any problems now because of the menopause these hormonal fluctuations that's giving me an even bigger spike therefore it's going to have a knock-on effect on me so you need to really pay attention to the quality of the food much more than you were doing uh, a few years before if you were lucky enough the sort of person that, that could eat more or less anything whoever you are you need to really you know, dial up those uh, factors to reduce those yeah. sugar spikes, reduce the fat spikes, but also compensate and improve the gut microbes. So that's your 30 different vegetables. Yes. Yeah, so that's What is that, a day, a month, a week? I can't remember. <laughs> I, got confu- I get confused with numbers. It's, it's a, a month. month. Yeah, no, it's, it's month. not. It's a week. It's a week. It's a week. <laughs> oh, a week. We both got it wrong. Oh, God. <laughs> we didn't listen to you when you, you came on didn't. the podcast. Well, I've been eating a lot more vegetables than you then, haven't I? <laughs> 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 but it's, yes. And it's not as hard as people think. If you haven't heard it before, it's nuts. Coffee's it's one. Coffee's one. Coffee counts, exactly. So um, that's one ticked off every, every morning. And isn't it's it? less processed food. Yeah, I'm not talking about 30 plants in a packet. This is no. 30 real plants, yeah. nuts, seeds, but spices as well. You know, a teaspoon of spice mm. mix counts. For me, very high quality dark chocolate counts. Mm, and yes, you like that you one? Like that. <laughs> Hobnobs do It not. is a plant. Yeah. It's, it's a fermented plant. We yeah. mustn't forget if it hasn't yeah. got all the other additives in it. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's all mm. about trying to pick unprocessed food and also the, the rainbow. So the other thing is that when you're Picking your plants, go for the colours, go for something different on your plate. Mustn't all be beige or the, all, all green. green yeah. The idea is to get those, because that means you're going to get these defence chemicals, these polyphenols, which are the bitter and colourful chemicals that are, defend plants from attack, and they are like rocket fuel for our gut microbes. So they're really important to get. If you can afford it, organic produce has 30% more uh, of these polyphenols than regular stuff and the thir- third tip is fermented food do you, do you guys kefir ha- yes. kefir i do kefir. Yeah. i'm not yeah. keen on kefir kombucha girls. that upsets me slightly but yeah. yeah there are lots of different kombuchas yes i don't think i found the one that agrees with me quite no yet. Well, yeah. no the ones i make no one agrees they no one likes it except me so i think <laughs> you need to find one that isn't too sweet though yeah. it's not too artificial there are some fake ones out there but generally you can dilute them you're not talking about probiotics, are you? No. You're, yeah. So what, are, what's the... Well, fermented foods are probiotic foods. Yeah. Okay, so this means it's food with live microbes in them. So the yogurts. Cabbage. Uh, uh, no. Isn't fermented cabbage? Uh, well, fermented cabbage, yes. yes, so I th- yes. Uh, yeah. Not uh, just cabbage. No. <laughs> not just cabbage, no. So sa- sauerkraut no. is, is yeah. what Sauerkraut's, I call yes. it. But yes. yeah, the um, sauerkraut, kimchi, kefir, yogurt. Good quality cheeses, not craft slices. Nothing out of a spray can either. Um, it's alive, which means it will go mouldy. That's yeah. a good test. If it never goes mouldy, you avoid it. Yeah. Um, try kombuchas. There are many different ones, and you can mix it with mm. other things as yeah. well. So, um, Where does meat fit in? Well, we don't eat meat, but we know a lot of people do. How does meat fit into this new sort of way of eating or adjusted way of eating? 
Processed meats and ultra-processed meats Bad. are best avoided. They're related to cancer risk and heart disease risk. If you go, people like high-quality meats and maybe organic and grass-fed and you have it every once in a while, nothing wrong with that as long as it doesn't take too much room on your plate. All nutrition is, you know, we've been in the past reductionists saying we should avoid this, avoid this. Yeah. It's all about what else do you put instead of it. It's all about it's adding in the good. what do you add in. So my problem with big meat eaters is they've got no room, either in their stomachs or on their plate, to put this whole Just range of diverse fruits and vegetables. Yes, so, <laughs> so, but I don't think if you're having meat twice a day is far too much, that is probably bad for you. Having meat once or twice a week, perfectly fine mm -hmm. if it's good quality, hasn't got too many antibiotics in it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And small portion, or you have your salad and, and first, mm -hmm. which, you know, this sort of meal ordering yeah. idea that some people have, which, and in some countries they practice with, you know, having the, the vegetables uh, first yeah. or the pickles or ferments first, then you might have the meat at the end if you're still hungry. Yeah. That way you, you, you might be able to uh, yeah. combine these things. So... I think the whole idea of my philosophy and of Zoe's is that we're not trying to cut out any real food. We want to encourage diversity, mm. encourage people to be excited about trying new things, not banning anything if it's, if it's real quality stuff. Can we just sort of slightly backtrack to menopause and HRT? Because obviously you've talked about the hormone fluctuations impact on the microbiome. What happens when you introduce HRT? Because we, we still hear from women that they still can't lose weight, even though they've gone on to HRT and they're, they're trying to... Does HRT have an impact? Well, most of the studies done so far show that HRT, on average, doesn't have a major effect on weight. Mm -hmm. So when I was starting the menopause clinics back in the, the early 90s, uh, there was a big worry that it, you know, it, it, yeah. it made you massively increase weight. Mm -hmm. We do I, get asked this a lot, yeah, yeah. particularly on our And group, yeah. there were some studies that were a bit erroneous that, that gave this impression. And it, I think they just thought it was like, you know, you've got chickens and you give them uh, hormones to plump them up. You know, this is what would happen <laughs> oh, to women. Right. That was sort of uh, uh, the idea. But it was totally wrong. And, um, but at the same time, I don't think it's a weight loss uh, miracle No, pill. so it's, it's not affecting your weight potentially in midlife if you're on So I think it's a tool basis. that if you combine it with a better diet, mm -hmm. then we've shown that women on, on HRT had lower sugar spikes, lower fat spikes than right. uh, women That's who good. weren't on it. And so in our data, there's a tendency to have uh, lower weight in our group. But, you know, without doing a full clinical trial, it's hard to hard to prove it. So I think it doesn't completely reverse it, the sugar spikes, but it, it goes, you know, 50% of the way there with, with HRT right. users. So that's, that's an important thing. And we also found differences between uh, women who, are, who started overweight, did worse than thinner women as well. Mm -hmm. We don't quite understand why, but there were bigger spikes and, and bigger problems already carrying that weight, possibly because of the shift in hormones might have been bigger because of the, um, a lot of the hormones stored in, in uh, body ah, fat. Well, there's a lot to think about there. Um, I'm sure we've got lots of questions in the audience. Um, does anybody have a question for Tim? There's a lady over here in the second row. Lovely to meet you. I'm a huge fan. I've been doing everything that you talked about for a couple of years now, and I can, I'm a living example that it works. I do have specific questions with regards to intermittent fasting when you enter the perimenopausal period. What is your view on that? And also, for someone who's vegan, um, which I'm not, but I'm working on it, um, what is your view on eating tofu? So tofu, I recommend tofu. The data about tofu, soy, breast cancer, etc. It's really not worrying enough or, or clear enough to be a problem. Certainly across Asia, people who eat a lot of tofu have less breast cancer. And so it, it seems to be very country dependent. So it's probably other things that people are eating that's caused that problem rather than the tofu. There's nothing I can think of in these tiny amounts of phytoestrogens that are really going to have an impact. Tofu is a great source of protein. Just make sure you don't get the over-processed ones and you go for good quality stuff. That's fine. Intermittent fasting and the perimenopause. Well, intermittent fasting doesn't suit everybody. Just like we're, we're telling everybody, yeah. we're all individuals. We've all got different sugar spikes for things. 
my wife and I have completely, you know, she can eat croissants and orange juice, I can't, you know. This is what happened with it's us. really annoying. <laughs> she can have granola for breakfast, I you can't. can't. It's a disaster. No. Blow up like a balloon, well, didn't well, you? Yeah. yeah. So, and the same is true in Isabel. So we did this massive study and, you know, 100,000 people trying it. Some people found it really difficult in the first place. Even some of my colleagues at Zoe, the idea of going long periods of time without snacks. Uh, they found really hard. I find it easy. So I think you've got to work out that there isn't one size fits all for this and that people have got to work out what works for them. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Therapist Julia Samuel is one of our go-to experts when it comes to navigating the tricky moments of family life. And this is a must-listen for anyone facing a family issue right now. We're big fans of Julia's easy-to-understand advice, and she came onto our lovely cream sofa to tell us how to understand family dynamics without getting hurt, how you can set healthy boundaries, cope with conflict, and changing patterns within families, which is what she's explaining during this live session on Postcards from Midlife Live. Patterns in family are transgenerational, and they come down from two systems. So they come down from behavioral. So what we model as parents and what was modeled to us by our parents is how we learn. So if our mother or father is saying to us, be happy, but they're actually very unhappy, we actually pick up the message from their behavior that they're not happy. We won't take in, be happy. So, and if you parents model how you deal with emotions is to shut them down, be very busy, go to work, don't talk about them, forget and move on. That is how we will deal with emotions. Behavioral patterns and responses to emotions also can pass down epigenetically. And this is not for everybody. It's kind of random who it gets carried down to epigenetically. So nothing is inevitable. But often transmission of trauma can be passed down in our genes so that our genes are changed by the trauma that's carried so in the body. It's inherited. Saying. You can inherit trauma in the womb. two generations back in the womb. Yeah. So a lot of the research was from Rachel Yehuda in Israel, from Holocaust survivors, often second and third generations had much higher uh, rates of cortisol and response to to extreme emotions yeah. and relationship with food and digestive issues around food and noises than was in the kind of norm. And in Holland, where there was the great hunger in the, 19, in, in the, in the Second World War, there were women that were pregnant, their children, their, their genes were changed by the hunger. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. But it isn't inevitable, so don't sit there thinking, oh my yeah. God. I am, you know, traumatized because my grandfather was, a, was in the war or whatever. It isn't inevitable. But my message is that nothing is fixed. We have this incredible brain that is, has neuroplasticity and that we are wired to change. Evolutionarily, although we don't like changing, we have an enormous capacity to adapt and change. I mean, if you look at COVID, although it was very difficult, it was surprising how all of us adapted and changed very, very fast. What became normal very quickly was our new normal. And we didn't even really think about it after a few weeks. My message is that given that there are those two routes to patterns, if you have negative patterns in you and you're aware of them, if you can change them in your generation, you will change them for your children's generation. And so the message is, if you don't feel the pain of it, you're not going to be able to change it. lot to think about there. Now, i tell you what we want to talk about, almost an agony art thing here. So in midlife, we have teenagers at home, 
And we all know parenting adolescence is quite tricky. It's a bit of a challenge. Um, and we might be going through divorce. We might be also falling out with our friends. So I thought it'd be good to ask you about how to deal with conflict uh, in midlife. Also, we are full of rage. There is that other thing, that other midlife perimenopausal thing. What's your advice as a therapist on dealing with conflicts, A, as a parent, and B, as with other relationships? I think the first thing to acknowledge is that we will inevitably have conflict. I think we have this idea of a, everybody else has this idealized family that they kind of, if they fight, they're really sweet about it and say, oh, sorry. I'm and quite it, shouty. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets sorted. But actually, again, where you love most, you fight most. So it is never about not fighting. You will fight. I think the things that help is how you fight, like not tearing each other down and trying to annihilate each other using your words as weapons of mass destruction is probably quite a right. good way not to fight. Okay, she's looking at me, Trish. But to, <laughs> but to, to kind of be, know, you know, when you did this, I felt this is the basic kind of yeah. model of how you fight. But the big thing about fighting is the rupture, the fight, however big or small it is, and the piece that changes the quality of the fight and the quality of your entire family relationship is the repair after the fight. And that is the key message, is that when you have a fight that you need as a family between the people who are fighting and maybe the others who are observing to repair, to work out why were we so angry? What happened? What do we need to understand? What did you not understand about me? What, I, what do I want you to know? And, and feel closer because often the fight does allow a level of intimacy in the way that high energy does, that just ordinary life doesn't. So you feel relieved because you've been seen, because you've acknowledged what you really feel, and it's been allowed. It may not have been agreed with, but it's been allowed and acknowledged. And I think the other part that goes with fight, so I wrote 12 touchstones for every family and, and fighting productively is one of the touchstones. But the other part of it that links with fighting is allowing difference. Like there isn't one right way of believing about things or how to dress or what to do and allow difference within the family. I think often fights are about power, about difference. And if you're accommodating and allow that, then you, I think, feel closer and more secure and trusting and trusted in your family. And what about mm. boundaries? Because does that come out of that as well, of after the repair, setting boundaries around things, um, whether in family or in, in other areas of our lives? Because as, as midlife women, we know we're trying to do so many different things. We say yes to everything. We don't want to say no. We want to keep everybody happy. We're juggling so many things, but we need to learn to start setting boundaries, either in our relationships or in other parts of our lives. How do we do that? So boundaries are key. And it, it, just what you said, you know, what is your yes worth if you never say no? Mm. And if you're always the one that says yes, you're going to build resentment. But also, you're in some way going to be disrespected. So one of the ideas of boundaries is that boundaries are fences that kind of keep you safe. They contain you and they help you recognize within yourself your limits and your capacity. And it helps those around you to recognize your limits and capacity. So there's much more clarity. When you don't have boundaries, you can have codependence. You can have all sorts of merging of emotions and feelings and thoughts and decisions that feels incredibly chaotic. Mm -hmm. And you could, you, there are many different types of boundaries. There's emotional boundaries. And of course, you have physical boundaries like don't take my stuff or don't come into my bedroom or, you know, there's many different boundaries. So say if you have been in a relationship for a long time, maybe with a partner and you want to set a boundary and you've never done it before, <laughs> or you've never really thought you might be doing it without thinking about it. But if you're you talking about me, <laughs> yeah. setting a boundary, yes. <laughs> um, how would you approach this? Is this it? you using me as your personal <laughs> yeah. This is a therapy session, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you're right in that setting a boundary at the beginning as early as possible is most effective. It is much harder to go back and set a boundary after the relationship has started. So if you're 
kind of starting a new relationship, whether it's work or whether it's with a partner or whether whoever it's with, try and be clear about your limits and boundaries at the very beginning. If you're coming down the track 15 years, you need to have, you sit down. I mean, I always think difficult conversations with partners or children is often better outside walking because you're in rhythm with each other. You're not eyeballing each other. You have nature that takes up a lot of the emotion. So if you're having a difficult conversation, I think you name it. Like I have been thinking about, I've been reading about, I've been listening to someone. I think I have kind of messed up the boundaries with you and me. And it's not blaming the other person. It's like, can we look at it together? Being collaborative. Help me think about this together. Because the thing I'm having a problem with is whatever it is. And then ask for their ideas. If you go into it saying, we need to change our boundaries and you need to do this, they feel naturally defensive because in some ways it's an attack. But if it's a collaborative thinking together, let's work this out together and help me because you know me somehow in some ways better than I know myself because you know all my kind of fault lines Mm. very well. And so I think that's a good way of doing it. Those conversations, they're very rarely one big conversation where everything gets sorted. It's very often you can have a beginning conversation and most change, most transformational change happens in small steps over a longer time than you want. Leading menopause specialist Dr. Louise Newsom was one of the very first people we interviewed on this show when it launched nearly four years ago. We couldn't wait to get her back to share some more important updates about menopause, including whether, when and how to take testosterone. And not only did she join us live on stage at Postcards from Midlife Live, she brought her expert team of clinicians, nutritionists and sleep specialists from the Balance app to host the very first pop-up menopause clinic too. When Louise joined us, we got straight to the crux of the matter by asking her what menopause is and how to know when you're in perimenopause. So if we break down menopause first, because it causes lots of myths for lots of people. Firstly, you have to have not had a period for a year. So I can't think of anything else in medicine where I can see a patient and say, no, 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 come back in a year's time or come back in 10 months' time before I can diagnose you. So it's been very much defined about periods. It's about our wombs. It's about whether we're fertile or not. And actually, for a lot of us, I don't give a flying monkeys whether I'm fertile or not. I don't actually <laughs> care about my womb because I've had a hysterectomy, so I don't have periods. So how do I know if I'm menopausal or not? Um, what it happens is, is that it's associated with our hormones. And as you know, our hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, get produced from our ovaries. Um, they're there for a purpose because they help our egg production. But for most of us, as we age, we have less eggs, we have less hormones associated with it. So the menopause is actually about our hormones declining, as opposed to really our fertility or our periods. Most of us, it occurs naturally because we become older. Great. But for some women, about 3% of women, it occurs under the age of 40. And that can be because their ovaries are removed. Once they're removed, obviously, they become menopausal. Or if their ovaries are damaged by radiotherapy, some drugs, chemotherapy, or just bad luck, actually. Sometimes the yeah. eggs run out sooner. But the menopause is just a day if you define it as a year since your last period. And then people are saying, well, I'm through it. I'm postmenopausal. But actually, once your hormones are low, they're low forever, I'm afraid. It can be associated with symptoms that we'll talk about, but also health risks as well. But then this perimenopause, this term that's sort of talking about, are you peri or not? Peri is a medical term for meaning around the time of. So for most women, their hormones don't just stop. They just decline, but they don't decline all very smoothly. For most of us that have been perimenopausal, soon realize that you have days or minutes where you feel okay and days or minutes where you feel absolutely dreadful because our hormones fluctuate and then just gradually go down. And this perimenopause is a time where you have symptoms but you're still having periods and it can last for several years, sometimes a decade or so. So most women will become menopausal around the age of 50 in the UK, some countries a lot earlier. So in the 40s, women will either be perimenopausal or menopausal. And the symptoms of perimenopause, I guess we should just sort of run through. There's over 40 
we think, but they can be really anything, can't they? they Over can 40, be I think there's probably far Tinnitus more. is a symptom. Yeah. Dizziness yeah. is a symptom. You know, rage, depression. What, what are the main symptoms you see women present with? Yeah, so if we think about our hormones, especially estrogen and testosterone, actually, we've got cells all over our body. So every single cell in our body responds to hormones. And hormones are just chemical messengers that take a message from one area of the body to the other, usually through the bloodstream. So there's lots and lots of hormones, as we know. There's adrenaline, there's cortisol, there's insulin, there's thyroxin, and then our sex hormones. And they're exactly the same. They leave our ovaries, and we actually produce them in our adrenal glands. In our brain produces some hormones as well. Get into the bloodstream, go around our body. Um, and because of this, we've got cells that respond to our hormones. So when the hormone latches onto the receptor, it makes the cells have different functions. So if you think about the myriad of cells we have in our body, they can all be affected by the low hormones. So then people, if you even just work down, it's our brain that is most affected by the menopause because our hormones are neurotransmitters. They're chemicals that send messengers from one area of the brain to another. Um, our brains light up when we have hormones. So um, we know from the Balance app, the commonest symptoms are brain fog, memory problems, anxiety, poor sleep, Hot flushes is there, but it's sort of number five or six. And then other really common symptoms are muscle and joint pains, as you've already said, mood. People can feel very anxious. They can feel very low. They can ruminate, worry a lot. Some people feel very irritable. Um, and then dry eyes can be very common. Dry mouth, change in taste. Burning mouth can occur. You've already said yeah. tinnitus, ear, and so on. It just goes on and on and on. No area of the body can can be missed. A lot of people, you'll be pleased to know, don't have all the symptoms together. But people for many years, in fact, even when estrogen was discovered, they just associated it with hot flushes. Whereas when insulin was discovered, they associated it with diabetes, a disease. And what a shame we didn't think more at that time. Yeah. So lots of people think, well, I don't have any hot flushes or I've had, my hot flushes are finished because for some women they last just a few years so I'm through the menopause but then when you say well what's your sleep like do you get any muscle or joint pains what about urinary symptoms oh yeah but that's just because I'm older that's that's just normal no it's not actually we shouldn't be really experiencing symptoms and for many of us as clinicians we don't know whether symptoms are due to hormones or not until we have the hormones back and then you can see what else is missing really and I think it's important to put into context that the, the, not every woman will go through all these symptoms. We don't want to frighten the life out of everybody. But if you know what is happening, you can get treatment, support, and change your life to make your life a bit easier. So Trish and I started the podcast because we were talking about what we'd been through. And I had started to unravel in my late 40s. I couldn't remember which side of the road to drive on. Uh, I couldn't sleep. I was covered in night sweats. I was just very depressed. And all of it seemed really out of the ordinary for me. I couldn't work out what the hell was going on. Trish was having similar symptoms. We talked to other women. They were having similar symptoms. So I said, I'm going to go and see Dr. Louise Newsom because from the research, she seems to be the person who knows the most about menopause and perimenopause. But, but I hadn't heard the term perimenopause. So I went to see you and you prescribed hormone replacement therapy. So to replace my declining and fluctuating hormones. This was before it was being discussed so publicly. So I think it would be really helpful now, because it changed my life. Within two weeks, the symptoms that I was suffering had gone. And it was so extraordinary. It was like someone had just switched me back on again. And, I, you know, Trish and I thought, That's, this is unfair. Why don't more people know about this? So why don't you tell us now what hormone replacement therapy is and why there has been such illogical fear around mm. it? Such a shame, isn't it? So HRT, hormone replacement therapy, is only three letters. Yes. But they've always been associated with breast cancer. I'll unpick that in a minute. But just looking what HRT is, it really, I think, should be called HST, so hormone support treatment. We don't replace hormones. When people are perimenopausal, we're just topping up what's they're missing. Gone, yeah. um, and that's really important to know. There are lots of hormones, like I say, um, and the hormones when we're talking about menopause and perimenopause, it's estrogen, progesterone, and often testosterone as well. We're all different. So we need different doses, different types. Um, some people need more estrogen. Some people need less estrogen. Some people need testosterone. Some don't benefit from testosterone. If you've got a womb, then you're recommended to have a progesterone as well. 
we usually prescribe the body identical hormones, which basically means when they're under the microscope, they look exactly the same as the hormones that we produce when we're younger. There are synthetic types of hormones which have been chemically altered. And we've many of us have taken that for years in the contraceptive pills. So all the contraceptive pills, the implants, um, the injections, they're all synthetic, which is okay, but they're not what nature wanted us to have. They've just been chemically changed a bit. So we're very fortunate that on the NHS as well, we've got these body identical hormones. Um, and so what we normally do is give the estrogen through the skin as a patch or gel or there is a spray so it goes straight into the bloodstream so it doesn't have to be digested, metabolized and when things are metabolized they get changed into other substances so it's the real deal that you put on goes in. And then the progesterone, the best type, if you can get hold of it, because there's a shortage at the minute, is this Eutrogestan, the, the micronized progesterone, which again is the, the normal natural progesterone and the same with testosterone again. Years ago, when I was a junior doctor, we used to prescribe HRT loads, actually, and loads not just for women suffering, but to try and help future disease risk. And then this study came out, and that was the nail in, nail in the coffin for HRT. And what happened, as you know, it's called this WHI, the Women's Health Initiative Study. And they decided, I don't know where they got the money from, but it was a billion dollars. I can't imagine anyone spending a billion dollars on women's health now. But they decided to do this big study because they knew that HRT was, was really effective for a lot of women. It was transforming people's lives, as we're hearing, but also their future health. So they thought, right, let's give it to older women and see if we can have this effect on older women. The average age in this study was women who were 63. And a lot of the women in the study were obese, overweight, and had heart disease. So they had risk factors for diseases such as, as cardiovascular heart disease as well, and breast cancer, actually, because obesity is a risk factor for breast cancer, as I'm sure you're aware. It was at the end of the sort of 90s, they were having to justify this huge amount of money they were spending. They weren't really getting great results. And so they um, had a really cursory look at the results and said, oh, there's a bit of a wobble over the breast cancer risk. Let's just sell that to the papers. And if you look at videos, you know, there's people sitting on the sofa like this just saying HRT is dangerous. It will cause breast cancer. So understandably, millions of women worldwide stopped taking their HRT and millions of women worldwide have been denied HRT for many years. What they have done in their wisdom is looked properly now. Isn't that good at the mm. data? First thing to say is the type of HRT they prescribed was not body identical hormones. Very, very different. It's like comparing apples with pears. Um, what they did was give the pregnant horses urine type of HRT. And that's not prescribed anymore. No, so. well, it is in some people. And in America, yeah, it's, in the, well, it's yeah, pretty it's much all they can get hold of, which is a shame. But anyway, we don't prescribe it over here very often, which is great. Um, and it was a tablet, and they gave quite a high dose of a tablet. Now, we know that tablet estrogen has a very small risk of clot. It's only small, but as we get older, our risk of clot increases. But it was also a synthetic progesterone, so an unnatural progesterone. And we know that those um, unnatural progesterones, if you like, the synthetic progesterones, have a very small increased risk of clot, but also heart disease. And even me, who's clearly quite pro-HRT, I would never have given that type of HRT to those women. And then when they analysed properly the combination HRT people, so this is the worst type of HRT that anyone will get prescribed, the risk of breast cancer wasn't statistically significant and it was lower than risk of other risk factors such as obesity, not exercising, moderate amounts of alcohol. But then when they followed women who only had estrogen, so women who'd had a hysterectomy, they found that there was a 22% relative risk lower of breast cancer. And anyone that did have breast cancer, regardless of what type of HRT they took, had a lower risk of dying from breast cancer. Can we talk about testosterone? Because there's, yeah. I think there's quite a lot of confusion mm. around it because obviously NICE guidelines are different. There's going to be some research uh, into it. Um, I think you're going to be better at explaining this yeah. than I am. Um, but again, we, we do hear a lot of confusing um, comments on the Facebook group about why women are seeking testosterone and what you were allowed to have it for and what it actually does for you. Yeah, so it's a great question. Testosterone is a, just another hormone. It's really frustrating, isn't it, that it's called testosterone it comes from the testes in men <laughs> so it's all immediately we think about it as a male hormone of course it is a male hormone but we produce it 
as well. And when we're younger, it's the most biologically active hormone we have. We produce higher level doses or levels in our body than we do of estrogen. It's not actually a menopause decline. Mm. It's a natural, it's an age decline. If you look at the graph, it just gets lower as we get older. We produce it from our ovaries and we produce it from our adrenal glands and some other areas in our body as well. Um, we have testosterone receptors all over our body and especially in our brains as well. Um, and we know certainly in men it has big effects for symptoms but also for future health and in women it does. So symptoms of testosterone deficiency can include this anhedonia, this CBA is what my daughter often texts me, can't be asked. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, um, it's that sort of, oh, everything's an effort, but it's it also can affect um, uh, the way we feel. Uh, a lot of people find when they've got low energy, they just not so motivated to do things. They might feel lower in their mood, more anxious. But the, the big area that it's been researched on is about sex and libido. Of course, you know, maybe the research has been done by men and maybe that's the most <laughs> important thing for women. But um, so we have got evidence to show that libido can improve with women who take testosterone in addition to HRT. And so therefore, the NICE guidance says in women who have reduced sexual desire despite taking HRT, we can consider testosterone. Ten years ago, I didn't even know women had testosterone. I'd never prescribed it in my life. Nice guidance came out thinking, testosterone, what's this? Okay, I'll go and do some reading. Did some reading, used a bit of common sense and thought, well, let's try it in, you know, with the nice guidance. I see a lot of women who have reduced libido. And then found, like many other specialists in many other clinics, mood, energy, concentration, stamina comes back. So we've been looking at our data. We collect data from symptom questionnaires from all the women that come to our clinic and so we've just looked at 905 women so not an insignificant number and found that actually the mental health improvements are more significant than the libido improvements for many women who have testosterone added in irrespective of whether their estrogen dose is increased or not anxiety low mood sleep also muscle and joint pains can really make an, a, a difference as well so that would be maybe if you're if you felt like the estrogen wasn't helping you with those symptoms you might look at adding in testosterone yeah yeah so so often we start hrt first mm -hmm. review symptoms but really commonly women come out and say yeah I, maybe my flushes and my sweats have gone i've got a bit more energy but i'm still feeling really low and you know we do see a skewed population in the clinic 98 percent of women have psychological symptoms most days we listen to women who have suicidal thoughts but they're already under psychiatrists they've tried antidepressants more and more we're seeing people that have been given antipsychotics, they've been given ECT. We've seen some recently that have had ketamine. Like, why would you give ketamine mm. without trying HRT? And testosterone can make a huge difference to mental health. But that's no surprise when you see how it lights up our brains. Mm -hmm. There's a real pushback about testosterone because people are now thinking, right, it costs, well, the, the Australian testosterone cream costs about a pound a day. If we've got 13 million women in the UK, do we want to spend a pound a day on them? Well, yeah, I think we should because it means that we can get back to work. We can mm -hmm. earn more money to our household. We you can be better. You can't get it on the NHS in that you can, form. You can't you get, get that form in the NHS. Yeah. So the um, only way you can prescribe it in the NHS is the male testosterone, because of course they can get their own hormone back, um, in lower doses, because it's the same For free, hormone. Without any <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, it's also not on this, you know, the new prescription where you get this, yes, pay one certificate, the prepayment certificate. It's not on that mm. certificate um, as well, which is really frustrating. Mm. So a lot of people have to go to private clinics and get it. A lot of GPs really want to prescribe it, but can't because it's not in their formulary. So I spoke to someone yesterday who said that she was referred in 2021 for testosterone. She's on HRT, but she's still getting a few symptoms. And her appointment came through for January 2024, so that's three-year oh. wait. And then she got a letter last week, so it had been cancelled. Oh, gosh. So, yes. like, and, and, and I have a real issue. I, I don't want to be disrespectful to my colleagues, but I don't understand why gynecologists should know more than me just because I'm a GP. Like, mm. I've still got a brain. I can still read mm. the same papers as them. And testosterone is very, very safe. You know, we prescribe very low doses. Women are in control. I, I, we don't prescribe implants. So women have to put it on themselves. They don't come to your house mm. every day and put it on. <laughs> and we measure levels. You know, every, every mm. year we just measure most women. The levels are still low, but they're feeling better. 
There's a big pushback that it's placebo, and especially when we produced our data, lots of people say it's just placebo. I don't think women are that stupid that they'll mm-hmm. pay for a placebo. Mm. Yeah. But there is funding now, isn't there? Yeah. I think it's well, NIHR, for, yeah, um, so, so they have, um, yeah, they have said that they'll mm-hmm. produce, they, there's some funding round for some grants looking at doing proper studies on the effects of testosterone other than libido, which is really needed. We, we put in a big proposal with Cardiff Clinical Trials Unit, uh, but it's going to take quite a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, doing clinical research is like watching a glacier move. It's very slow. Um, they've also say now that women have to be severely psychologically distressed with their reduced libido before even being considered for testosterone. And I have a real issue that's the issue thing we worry about the most, yeah. Well, I think... <laughs> well, totally. But I think, you know, there's a real issue. Libido, sex is really important for lots of, lots of mm. us. It's really important. But actually, why do I have to quiz women to see how severely psychologically distressed they are? If you have reduced libido, so what? How bad it is? If you were a man, it's really mm. so much easier mm. to get testosterone or get Viagra if mm. you want to over the counter. We're feeling a bit cross because we feel like in the last three years, people like you, Louise, uh, what we've done through the, the, the podcast and the Facebook group is, you know, bring menopause HRT mm. to the fore to, you know, mm. give women knowledge, empower them. And now it feels like something's coming along and trying to drive a wedge through it, trying mm. to, like you said, the, the feature about overprescribing. Mm. Um, it's not good, is it? Why? Why, Louise? What's, is mm. it men? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think... Um, well, there is a certain amount of medical gaslighting around women's pain and the treatment of women's mm. pain. We know that for sure. It's it? gone on for years, hasn't it? I mean, mm. if you think in the past, if you read about in history, our wombs were a cauldron. They scared mm. people, didn't they? What was going on? They didn't understand. And then if you look at the word um, hysteria from hysterectomy, you know, women were locked up in a silence. I think what I've done, wrongly or rightly, over the last seven years is expose people and allow women to understand what's going on in their body and the medical establishment don't like it actually and there's a lot of talk that people say it's outrageous that women are asking for HRT and that we shouldn't believe these women who are saying that they've got joint pains they've got muscle pains they've got poor sleep and they think it's going to improve with hormones but there's also this whole narrative that it's a lifestyle drug Mm. and that we all take it because we want nice skin and hair don't get me wrong it's nice that my skin's more hydrated and it's not itchy and causing pain and discomfort but actually even if we look at a skin and everyone jokes I can tell who's on HRT by their skin (laughs) actually a skin is an organ in our body it's a big organ in our body it means that our skin has more blood supply to it it's got more collagen to it Mm. it's got more good chemicals in our bloodstream feeding our our, um, skin. But actually, what's my liver like? What's my blood supply like? What's my lungs like? My, you know, my whole internal organs, of course, they'll have improved as well. And I think what's happening is people are forgetting that there's a scientific reason why our hormones are important. Um, there's a lot of personal pushback to me as a, as a person, maybe because I'm a woman, it doesn't help. So I'm really trying to be silenced by the establishment at the minute. And I'm obviously not going to go into it f- just for professional reasons, but, but I think actually they're leaving it a bit late because there's a lot of other people that understand and, a lot of my work is just about choice. You know, when I hear at meetings that we're over-prescribing HRT and the percentage of women is too high when it's gone from 10 to 15, 16% of menopausal women having HRT, mm-hmm. and they're saying we need to rein people back in, we need to reduce HRT prescribing. I'm there saying, well, I don't know what percentage it should be, but I am really wanting 100% of women who want to take HRT should be allowed to have it. If that's 17%, that's fine. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we have um, a little bit of time to ask questions of Louise. I can, can't see too far, so... Um, I think we've got some microphones. Oh, we've the, got some, oh, the girls are running. running. Here they come. <laughs> it's been Sophie. Hello. Uh, thanks so much, Louise. It's really helpful. I'm interested in the different sorts of delivery of progesterone, if that's all right. So um, I had a, a coil fitted four and a half years ago, and I had the estrogen on a patch. And now I'm 53. That ran out. Fine. Took it out month or so ago, thinking I was through the worst of it. And um, the last month has not been great. The last week I've had the mega period from hell after four years of thinking, yay, through all this. So how is it different? Is it different? 
Because clearly, like you say, I'm not imagining this. And I was just interested in, for lots of people, might be really unclear. They know they want it, but they don't know what is the difference between having a combined patch and having a patch and a coil. Yeah, thanks. Great question. So the combined patch has oestrogen and progesterone, but a synthetic progesterone. It's also the combination patch is quite low. It only contains 50 micrograms of of oestrogen. Some people like it. It's fine. We don't know what the clot risk is so much because the data hasn't been done of having a synthetic progesterone through, through the skin. I tend to prescribe, and we do in the clinic, um, oestrogen and progesterone separately. So if you need more oestrogen, you don't have to always increase progesterone. Or you might have bleeding and not need to increase oestrogen but need more progesterone. The progesterone, the utrogestan, if you can get hold of it, is is an oral capsule. But for some women, they don't like it orally. They get side effects. We can use it vaginally as well. Or there are vaginal preparations of progesterone, uh, which are still available, which we often now are converting people onto anyway. The marina coil is a synthetic progesterone, but it's very, very low dose that works on the womb. A lot of people use it for contraception. It's great because people don't have periods. So we can usually use it for five years as part of HRT. And if it suits people, you just have it replaced every five years. So we have women in their 70s come back to the clinic to have their marina coil replaced. And you can take HRT for the rest of your life. We had someone on the programme whose mum, who was 96, who was still taking HRT. Yeah, because all we're doing is replacing what's missing... Once you stop HRT, some people might find that their symptoms might have improved. Uh, not always the case. But actually, once you stop your HRT, that's when you've got this increased risk. And we know that actually in the first six months to a year of stopping HRT, there's an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke. So if I took my patches off now, then I know that I'm going to increase bone turnover, increase risk of osteoporosis. One of the reasons I take HRT, other than being able to get back to work and keep my husband, is um, uh, because I'm worried about osteoporosis, because yeah. I've already said how common it is. Not yeah. just fracturing my hip, but of my spine as well. So my personal choice is to continue. And the NICE guidance and other menopause guidance are clear. Just be reviewed every year. If your benefits outweigh your risk, then you can carry on. And this is where individualised choice, shared decision-making is really key. But if you're having problems specifically with periods during while taking HRT, you should obviously go and talk to your GP. Yeah, so, so when you start taking HRT, as many of you might know, the first three to six months you can get bleeding that can be chaotic, a real nuisance. We always usually say persevere unless it's very severe or you're feeling yeah. unwell, of course. If it occurs after that time, then you should definitely get investigated. But if you change your dose or type, then again, give three months or so to see if things settle down. What we no- normally try and do is give the progesterone continually so that people don't have periods, because I think that's the only advantage mm-hmm. that I can think of as the menopause, is not yeah, having periods. Not having periods. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. If you'd like to get in touch with Lorraine and I, there are plenty of ways that you can do it. Why not send us an email at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or direct message us at postcardsfrommidlife on Instagram. We always enjoy hearing from you, our lovely listeners, and we'll respond to as many of your queries as we can. And you can also join us on our private Facebook group, which is a forum for women to discuss the issues that affect us as we navigate this midlife. All you have to do to join is answer three of young Trisha's questions to gain access to the group, where you'll find information and friendly support to help you make the most of your second act. Well, we hope you enjoyed that little roundup. Uh, Do let us know what you think. And we look forward to seeing you all back in September. Goodbye. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.